In chapter 7 in particular, looking this morning at verses 13 to 17. Verses 13 to 17. Well, many people today, Christians included, are expecting too much of the people, places and possessions of life here on earth. We're expecting more joy, more contentment from the relationships and the experiences and the stuff of this world than they can possibly give us. As a comedian said a number of years ago, everything is awesome and nobody cares. No matter how awesome everything gets, no matter how great the experiences we have, somehow it always fills us. Uh, having a sen- it always leaves us feeling a sense of lack uh, and, a, and a sense of still not quite being fulfilled. Or as one preacher has put it, we want the kingdom without the king. We want the kingdom without the king. True Christian faith is actually about believing that life in this world, even at its very best, is not worth comparing to what we can look forward to afterwards. The Christian life is about the hope of heaven. And as we considered on Friday evening at our preparation service, when we hear the word heaven, uh, there's a sense in which we need to retrain our, our brains and our hearts as believers to think not so much of a place, but of a person, the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Heaven is about life with Jesus forevermore. On Friday evening, we considered three aspects of that life in heaven with Jesus. We considered the promises that we will see fulfilled in heaven, particularly the promise that God made to Abraham, that he would save a multitude of Abraham's descendants, both biological and spiritual. We also considered the victory parade that heaven will be, uh, that heaven will be the, the joyful celebration of the victory of the Lamb and also the praise to the Lamb that we will give. Well, today we're going to think about two more aspects of life in heaven at home with the Lamb uh, that we have to look forward to as Christians. Uh, before we think about those two aspects of, of life in heaven, there's one other thing I want to deal with firstly. Uh, and so firstly today, let's consider that we can only be in heaven because of the Lamb's blood. We can only be in heaven because of the Lamb's blood John has been taken right up into the throne room of heaven at this stage of the vision of Revelation. He's looking at the throne of heaven of, of God himself and he's looking at the Lamb and he's looking at the 24 elders around the throne and he's looking at the countless angels around the throne. He's looking at the four living creatures around the throne and he's looking at this great multitude that no one can number standing before the throne. And now look at verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these? Who is this multitude? Clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. The ones coming out of the great tribulation. There's a debate amongst Christians, as there is about most parts of Revelation, there's a debate amongst Christians about what the great, multi, or what the great tribulation actually is. 
Uh, some Christians believe that this great tribulation is a time that we haven't yet reached in human history. Uh, that it's a, a time that we haven't got to yet that will be far worse than anything that the world has experienced so far. A time of particularly intense pain and suffering uh, on this world right before Jesus comes back. Uh, but in fact, taking not only what Revelation says, but also what the rest of the New Testament teaches, there is good reason to understand this tribulation as having been going on ever since the Lord Jesus returned to heaven. It's what was pictured for us in chapter 6, the four riders on the four horses, bringing a measure of God's judgment to the earth here and now, as has been happening over the centuries. War and conquest, economic strife, illness and sickness and suffering and death. Things that Christians don't necessarily escape, but things that Christians can come through as we were considering the, the sealing of the 144,000 symbolizing that Christians are brought through the tribulation. And there's further evidence to believe that the great tribulation is something that's happening now and, and has been happening for a long time already. Uh, John says back in Revelation chapter 1 verse 9, uh, introducing the book, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So John introduces the book by saying that he is going through the same tribulation that the whole Christian church is already going through. And it requires patience and it requires endurance. Jesus said to his disciples a few hours before his death, John 16 verse 33, In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, he said, I have overcome the world. So Jesus was saying, when I leave, when my work on earth is done, you will have tribulation. You will be going through strife, pain, suffering, persecution. And the church has been going through those things, friends, and will do until Jesus returns. But here's the great reassurance of Revelation chapter 7. Those who belong to Jesus who put their faith and trust in him, in his precious blood shed at the cross, we will be brought through, we will come through the tribulation. It, it won't destroy us. It won't separate us from Christ. We will come through it. And after tribulation, we will have celebration. We will have victory. We will have life with the Lamb. Look again at the end of verse 14. Look how the elder in heaven describes the multitude that John sees. He says they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's, that's the description of who is in heaven, friends. People who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And this is yet another Old Testament picture being used in Revelation in the Old Testament, uh, very often garments had to be washed. Uh, they had to be uh, made clean and pure, whether or not there was actually any stains upon them. Uh, the priests, for example, when they went to serve in the temple, their garments had to be washed. They had to be pure and clean. And Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 takes this picture a little further and says, 
Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They shall be white as snow. So this Old Testament picture, friends, of sin being washed away uh, through blood, through cleansing. But what this picture also emphasizes, friends, is that those who make up this multitude in heaven will be there because they have lived their lives in the same way that Christ lived his. What I mean by that is that they have followed Christ's example of suffering on earth, knowing that they will be rewarded afterwards in heaven. That was the pattern of Christ's life, wasn't it? That was what kept him going at times when he was suffering and facing the cross on earth. He knew that he would be with his Father in glory again. Even as he died on the cross, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He knew that he would be rewarded for his life of suffering. And oftentimes in Revelation, when Christ's blood is mentioned, often it's in connection with his suffering. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 9 says, You were slain, that's the Lamb, of course, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. In other words, Christ suffered so that he could save us. Christ endured the cross so that he could purchase us. And friends, the reality is that the Christian life is a life spent following a crucified Savior. Pick up your cross and follow me, Jesus said. Living in a, in a Christianized culture like ours, Uh, We have entirely lost the scandal and horror of those words. Pick up your cross and follow me. At the very least, picking up your cross and following Jesus means that in this life, we will have tribulation. We will have tribulation. This world is not your home. This life is not the best life. Your stuff will not satisfy you. Death will separate us, albeit temporarily, from one another. But if you have come to the Lamb and trusted in his blood shed on the cross, then he has purified you and he has sealed you and he will give you the power of his Holy Spirit so that you can persevere and you can overcome until at last you are safely home with the Lamb, all because of his blood. Corrie ten Boom, the Christian Holocaust survivor, I'm sure many of you have read her books. She once said this, she said, there is, there is perhaps not a phrase in the Bible that is so full of secret truth as is, quote, the blood of Jesus. It is the secret of his incarnation when Jesus took on flesh and blood. The secret of his obedience unto death when he gave his life at the cross. The secret of his love that went beyond all understanding. When he bought us with his blood, the secret of our eternal salvation. And so Christian, as you take the cup today, when we come to the Lord's table, remember again the cleansing, purifying, sealing power of Jesus' blood. As you take that wine into your body, remember that we are united to him and that he has placed in us power to come through tribulation, to bear tribulation in this world till eventually we arrive home in heaven pure and cleansed so we will only be in heaven because of the blood of the lamb 
But secondly, in heaven, and we, and we think now then about two further aspects of life in heaven. And so in heaven, friends, we will serve together in God's presence. In heaven, we will serve together in God's presence. Look at verse 15. Revelation seven fifteen. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They serve uh, day and night in his temple. We need to escape the notion, friends, that life in heaven will be dull. Listening to some Christians or listening even to some non-Christians, you would think that heaven is really going to be like some beautiful retirement home, except without the aches and pains that come with living in a retirement home. Heaven is not glorified retirement. When we talk about heaven being our Sabbath rest, we're not talking about doing nothing all the time. I remember talking about this with uh, some of my retired farmers in my previous congregation, and, and they, they, they were relieved to hear this. Men who like to work, like to be busy, like to, uh, as, as many of you do as well, I'm sure, you like to be able to look back on, uh, on a good day's work done. Well, heaven will be a place where we are doing things, we are serving, we are using our, the, the endless time that we have in service of our Lamb, of our God, our King. Life in heaven, friends, will be a life of service, of activity. And again, the language here is from the Old Testament, and particularly from the temple, the place where God's presence specially dwelt on earth with his people for a time. In the Old Testament temple, a relatively small number of people carried out all the duties of the temple. The priests were all men, and they were all from just one tribe of Israel, the Levites. And the Levite, the, the Levitical priests did all the work of the temple, organizing of worship, making the sacrifices, trimming the lamps, burning the incense, slaughtering the animals, everything. And so the Old Testament temple was marked by service, but it was the service of only a very small number of God's people. But in heaven, the lives of all of us will be marked by service. In heaven, we will finally become, in the fullest sense, a kingdom of priests. Back in Revelation 1 verse 6, John says, To him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father. Priests, friends, are those who serve, those who minister. And so we're already all of us priests as Christians in the sense that we are all called, we are all set apart, we are all God's chosen holy people, we all have gifts to use in the service of God. But life in heaven will be marked by perfect service, unending service, perfect worship of our God. We will dwell together and we will dwell with God. And so when we read that word temple in verse 15, friends, we're not to think of some future building. We're not to think about bricks and mortar. That's the misguided interpretation of some people who go for that here. At this juncture in Revelation, you can find Christian organizations today telling people to give money to the, 
the, the building of, a, of the new temple in Jerusalem, that's all nonsense, that's all misguided and, and foolish. Friends, the temple of heaven is a picture of the Lamb dwelling with his people. Revelation 21 verse 22 says, I saw no temple in the city, no physical building, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. The Lamb with his people is the only temple that we will ever see in heaven. The word temple or tabernacle simply means dwelling place. That's why John says in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. That's describing the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You remember also on one occasion Jesus said, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Again, he was talking about himself about his body, not the the physical temple of Jerusalem. And so what's being emphasized to us here in Revelation 7, 15, friends, is that life in heaven will be life spent worshiping and serving God and the Lamb, dwelling, tabernacling with him. How exactly will we do that? What will service in heaven look like? What will worship in heaven look like? Well, we get some ideas here and there in Revelation. But the answer really, friends, is that we will serve and worship God and the Lamb in heaven however he tells us to. However he wants us to, we will do as he says. In a sense that the regulative principle of worship will still apply in heaven. We will still worship God in whatever ways he expressly commands. And we will do so joyfully and we will do so gladly and we will be perfect And so we will be offering perfect worship and service to him. And what really comes through here in this text is not so much the the detail of what that worship will be, but the fact, friends, that we will simply be with our Savior. We will be with our Savior. Verse 15, he who sits, just look at these comforting words, verse 15, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Boys and girls here this morning, isn't it true that sometimes you just feel better for being with mom and dad? Maybe you feel sick at school or you have a nightmare while you're sleeping at night. What do you want more than anything else at that moment, boys and girls? You just want to be with your mom and dad. And you know that they can snap their fingers and make you feel better. But you just want to be with them. It doesn't matter whether they can take away your sickness or take away the nightmare or not. You just want to be with them. Our little daughter at the minute has decided that she would rather sleep in our arms than sleep properly through the night. Pray for us. Pray that she will begin sleeping through the night again. But she just wants to be held. She just wants to feel that closeness. And heaven, friends, is about dwelling with God, simply being with our Savior and knowing that that is all that we will need. Whatever service we will perform, whatever worship we will offer, it won't be out of any effort to impress or to convince him to take an interest in us. It will be service and worship offered up out of gratitude and delight that he does 
love us and has already chosen to dwell with us. One of the people that tends to get overlooked when Christians reflect on the story of Jesus' birth and infancy is Anna. You remember how Luke tells her story. Luke chapter 2 verse 37 tells us that Anna, a widow, she'd been a widow for much of her life, for decades and decades, and she was a lady in her 80s at this point, tells us in Luke 2 37, she did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. What motivated her to do that? What drew her to worship God so unceasingly at the temple? It was because she was waiting for the arrival of the Lamb. And it was and, and just a glimpse of the infant Jesus filled her with joy. Well, friends, we are promised an unending, glorious, the holy presence of the Lamb forever in heaven. One writer says, For all eternity, it will be our delightful and joyful privilege to serve in the worship of him who saved us by washing us clean by his blood. Is that what you're ultimately looking forward to during your life on this earth? Not just looking forward to the next holiday, not just looking forward to getting the next thing, or yes, meeting with those loved ones that we do love and care about so much, but are we are we looking forward, are we aiming towards life in heaven at home with the Lamb? Does the thought of worship in heaven fuel our worship here and now? The Lord's Supper, friends, is a sign and seal of the presence of Christ. That he's with us at this very moment as we worship him. He will minister to us through those ordinary elements, bread and wine, reminding us of his extraordinary grace and his redeeming blood and it will be a little glimpse as we come to the table today of the blessing we will one day enjoy being sheltered by his presence gladly worshiping together forever so in heaven we will worship we will enjoy the the unending presence of god and lastly in heaven we will be perfectly provided for by our shepherd In heaven, we will be perfectly provided for by our shepherd. What do we absolutely need as human beings? Forget about smartphones and cars and sport and laptops and uh, schools and takeaways and sit-in restaurants and all the rest. What are our most basic needs? We need water, we need food, we need shelter. If we have those things, we actually have everything that we need in a sense. And what we have in this closing section of chapter 7, friends, is a picture of our greatest needs being perfectly provided for. Look at chapter 7, verse 16. They shall hunger and thirst no more, neither, sorry, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water so no hunger no thirst perfect shelter from scorching heat or from freezing cold and again there's there's a heap of old testament language being used there you might think particularly of psalm 121 verse 6 the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night 
Or Isaiah 49, verse 10, They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. So again, friends, here are the promises of God made centuries earlier, being given one last time at the end of our Bibles. And we're promised here that they will be fulfilled when we are at home with the Lamb. And then as well, as we think about the language here at the end of chapter 7, we were reminded also of Psalm 23. If you look at verse 17, The Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And that reminds us, doesn't it, of Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, or I will have everything that I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Here's the perfect provision, friends, of our shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, when we finally get home to be with him. One preacher has said, Christ is both the lamb who takes away all our sin and the shepherd who provides all our blessings. The lamb who takes away all our sin and the shepherd who provides all our blessings. The last line of the chapter is, is almost too much. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In fact, the language there, in a technical sense, it really means God will prevent the tear from ever forming in the first place. There will be no tears in heaven. No tears to wipe away, no sorrow of any kind. No little children lost either in the womb or afterwards. No sudden shocks of pain going through your body. No more persecution of ordinary believers simply for wanting to gather for worship in Kabul or Beijing. No more sneers and sniggers in the office or the classroom because you were at worship today rather than sleeping off a hangover. No feeling among God's people of being small, defeated. God himself will have wiped away every tear. Here's the shepherd that we all need. The shepherd that we will one day see face to face. There's a verse from Colossians chapter 3 that came to my mind as I was preparing for, the, or for our communion season. Colossians 3 verse 2, Paul says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And I wonder, friends, is it one of those verses that sometimes we hear it and we think, yes, okay, I know that heaven will be great, and I'm looking forward to being there someday, but how am I supposed to set my mind on things above here and now? Uh, you know, as, uh, as we go through the stresses and strains of daily life, Maybe you think, I would love to set my mind in heaven, but I've got work to do. Or I've got little children running around me, crying for attention. I've got a family member, sick and frail. I've got a friend or a loved one who isn't a Christian. What good does it do setting our mind on things that are above? Well, friends, these are the things that are above. Not just not academic things, not, not technical uh, things, not theoretical things, but the prospect of the presence and protection of God 
and all of our needs met and no more tears. Surely thinking about that will help us to persevere with all those other things we're facing today. Surely knowing that all of that lies ahead can encourage us amid all the trouble we face. Dear Christian, stumbling, faltering, sacrificing, struggling Christian, set your mind on things that are above to help you with the things you struggle with here below. Here's what life in heaven is going to be like. Here's the future that awaits those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And if you're not a Christian today, either here in the building or listening in online, how happy are you with your life? How much better do you expect your life to get? Who are you looking to as the shepherd to provide for your needs? Because you are looking to someone. You realize that, don't you? Maybe you're looking to a social media influencer. Maybe you're trying to imitate a celebrity lifestyle. Maybe you envy the colleague higher up the ladder and you think, when I get there... Or maybe you think you need no shepherd but yourself and you can look after yourself and you can see to yourself. Well, in an ultimate sense, friend, you can't. You can't sort out your own soul. You can't guarantee everlasting life. The only shepherd who can help you is the lamb who was slain at the cross but who is now standing triumphant in heaven. And if you have shown no interest in him during your life on earth, you won't suddenly get to be with him when you die. It's like on a wedding day when the, when the bride and groom turn to each other to, to make their vows. That's just the next stage in their relationship. That's just taking what they already have to the next stage. The groom isn't going to marry some random woman who runs up the aisle at that point. He has no relationship with her. It's his bride whom he knows and loves that he wants to be with forever. And similarly, the moment you shut your eyes in this life, it will be too late for you to be with the shepherd in the next life. He invites you to come into relationship with him now. He invites you to be cleansed of your sin now so that you can enjoy his presence forever. Will you be in heaven one day? Will you be part of this great multitude that no one will be able to number, clothed in white robes and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen.